0: This episode is sponsored by Berkshire Hathaway Home State Companies (BHHC), a leading national writer of workers' compensation insurance, with the highest possible AM Best rating of A++ 15. BHHC represents financial strength and integrity. This is Dave Garcia, president of Rancho Mesa, and thank you for joining me and listening to today's podcast, brought to you by Studio One, our safety and risk management network. In today's show, I'll be talking with Rob Darby, the president of Berkshire Hathaway Home State Company's Workers' Compensation Division. They're one of the leading carriers writing workers' compensation insurance in California and all across the United States. During the show, we'll talk with Rob about the impact COVID-19 has had on the workers' compensation marketplace, what changes and impacts he sees as a result as we head into 2021. Hey, Rob, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Dave, thanks for having
0: me. Great. Hey, Now that we're almost a year into the pandemic, has the impact on workers' compensation claims been greater or less than you expected when it
1: first hit? That's a great question. I think I'll break it into two parts. It's been, I mean, overall, it's been less than expected, for sure nationwide. But when you look at the breakdown between California and all other states, it's been less better in California <laughs> than expected it has been outside of California. Outside of California, we really have had very few claims in terms of what we expected and, you know, relative to what we thought we were going to get. California has been a little bit closer to our expectation initially, but frankly, it's been, it's kind of been all over the place. And the, the reason for that is that, as you know, the pandemic in California, there've been a lot of things in California that's made it unique. You know, one is, A, we run a lot of business here, so that's, you know, it's obviously the state we pay a lot of attention to, but in terms of the, you know, kind of what's been happening in California, we had, you know, we've had multiple waves of infection across the state, which I think the third wave was, the amplitude of that was a lot bigger than we thought it was going to be, and it was more impactful than we thought it was going to be, and that's led to more claims, obviously, in the third wave. What's also been the overlay, as you know, is the, you know, executive order, the emergency order that the governor put out that expired on July 5th, and then It was followed up by SB 1159, which was a different, it had some of the elements of the executive order, but some of the elements were stripped out. And so what we saw, I think, in terms of, you know, what happened after 1159 was passed was we saw an increase in claims, but a lot more, I think, what I would call kind of discussions around compensability or debates around compensability. So there were different triggers that were put into place related to, you know, whether there were outbreaks, et cetera, rather than. It being related to as much to the kind of employment, it was really related now to how many cases were in a particular facility that that person may have been infected by. So it changed the dynamic, but you know, it really hasn't been as much as we thought. Although I would argue that maybe in 2021, early this year, maybe it was a little bit more than I would have expected when we first started back in March of 2020, when this first kind of broke. You know, we thought, oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end. We have you know, we're gonna have all these COVID claims. You know, we did have a lot, but you know, what, what was interesting is that we didn't predict the amplitude of the third wave being as high as it was. So I would say there have been a lot of claims that come out of the third wave that we maybe didn't expect initially. Okay. So
0: as far as the impact of SB 1159, then you've seen it kind of work through the system, and now it's really gotten down to the point of is it an outbreak or is it not? And where's the presumption line, things like that. So that's kind of settled out a little bit in your view, Rob,
1: from what you're saying? Settled out is an interesting way to put it. I think that what we're seeing is an increase in litigation around the the topic. So, you know, compensability is not quite as clear cut as it was under the EO. So, you know, when you're looking at a claim for compensability, the initial first question obviously is, you know, is it an industry that's considered a frontline health worker? In, in that case, it's still considered, presumed to be compensable. You've that as you mentioned, the, you know, concept of an outbreak, which, you know, again, that's also subject to you have to collect data on that, you have to figure out whether was an outbreak before you can accept the claim. What we're seeing a little bit more of is litigation around these issues, and I'll share a story with you that I thought was kind of an interesting one in terms of this issue. We had a nurse, she was a supervising nurse at a healthcare facility that actually didn't qualify for SB 1159 presumption, automatic presumption, because it was a 24-hour facility. And so, but she did work with COVID patients, and she – contracted COVID, got sick. She was hospitalized. She, you know, fortunately for her, she got better. Glad that, you know, we were glad for that, but you know, she, it really wasn't a claim that was compensable for us. Right. I mean, it was going to be one that would have been litigated. I think is the best way to put it because there wasn't an outbreak. She wasn't, you know, under the the presumption, but she was frustrated because she would have been covered before. And then she wasn't covered afterwards. So she wasn't mad at us at oh. the agency. She was frustrated because she said, why is it that I work with COVID patients and I'm not considered to be presumptively covered under work-off, right? And so it was, right. it was an interesting kind of thing where she wasn't really frustrated with us as much as she was saying, I want you to accept the claim because it would have been accepted before under the EO, right? right? And so it was a very interesting kind of situation. But we're seeing more litigation, I would say, around this now. And, you know, I think we're all a little bit – I don't think any of us want to necessarily take all these claims to, you know, court. It's hard to get – we all know everybody's so virtual, so even getting a court date is tough. But I and mean, also, you don't want to make bad case law, right? So there's a kind of the concern I think people have about bringing cases to the court that you may feel like you have a pretty strong denial based on, you know, SB 1159. But I think like any bill that gets passed in California, it seems the, you know, applicant's part is pretty smart. Over time, they're going to figure out what are the cracks in that bill and does there need to be clean up legislation of the people that, you know, were not included, that should have been included, like the woman that I just described. I mean, right. should she have... Included in that bill, and which is just kind of like overlooked, or was it really intentional on the part of the legislature to exclude that category of people? Yeah, probably. I'm sure it was just overlooked. It sounds like it, we could look for
0: some cleanup legislation to you know clean up those areas. I'm, I'm yeah, sure they didn't intend to exclude somebody like her. So, Rob, since since it's been about a year now, and you, you know, had a number of different COVID claims, and have you Berkshire Hathaway made any internal changes in how
1: you're handling? COVID-related claims? Yeah, actually, from the outset, I remember when we, you know, on March 13th, I was actually Dave down in San Diego at a meeting, and it was the last time I'd been on a plane, actually, and it was also the last in-person meeting I've had with a customer. Over that time, we had a lot of, you know, obviously, Zoom meetings and things like that. But, you know, when this started to hit, I remember our first thought was, well, we need to set up a unit for COVID claims, because the concern was that they were going to be fairly, they were going to be unusual, they are going to be new, they were going to have, you know, a lot of issues around compensability. This was actually pre-executive order even. So, yeah, we, we set up a group of, you know, we had a group of people that, you know, we still take the more complex COVID claims and they go into a kind of a technical claims team that is, you know, used to dealing with those. Now, that can sometimes be problematic for some of our customers who are used to having their own dedicated adjuster and they want that. Dedicated adjuster to work on all their claims for them, <clears throat> but you know our feeling was, and we've actually had pretty good. and I mean, I think the you know acceptance of this by our customers has been good. That you know on those more complicated COVID claims, they are being sent to different adjusters for handling, just because the AOE-COE issues are barely you know they're kind of arcane to this particular disease. Yeah, I really endorse that strategy. I think it's
0: to me similar to subrogation type claims where I know you have separate subrogation units that handle those kinds of claims, because to an everyday examiner, they may have one COVID claim every so often. And you really, first of all, want proper care given to the injured employee, but at the same time, you also want to make sure that you're guarding yourself against paying excessive medical costs when they're
1: not necessary, so. I love, well, as you know, you know, I've talked about this before, I like specialization within claims. The claims job, first of all, for all the people listening to this or anybody who listens to this who happens to be in the claims, you know, I have really mad respect for people that are claims adjusters because I think it's a very, very hard job. You have to know how to do a lot of things very well, right? You have to know how to, you have to understand medical issues. You have to understand, you know, the laws in California. You have to understand how to deal with a somebody who's been injured. You have to deal with doctors. You have to, There's just a lot of dimensions to that job to make it sort of challenging, right? And so when it came to COVID, what was interesting about it is that I have no concern. I'm not too concerned about whether an adjuster who's never looked at a COVID claim before. I don't, I don't think they'll have a problem managing the medical at all. But I do think the AO, I think the compensability issues are more complicated. And then also, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what happens with permanent disability? I mean, right. you know, Bill, that's still kind of unknown yet as to how much you know permanent disability. We're starting to see more evidence that you know lawyers, applicants, attorneys are starting to say, well, there's going to be ongoing disability for this injury. And, you know, it's just so soon that nobody really knows. I mean, do you fully recover from all the effects that COVID has on the lungs and the other body systems that it can attack? And, you know, it's still kind of early to know that. Right. The
0: recent news with the rollout of the vaccines, looks like some of the numbers are coming down. We've got through some of the holiday gatherings, so the numbers are beginning to drop. Rob, with all of that, what what are your expectations for COVID claims for the rest of 2021 and beyond? What do you think about that?
1: Uh, you know, I, I'm not. I, I guess my predictive abilities are, you know, maybe a little bit suspect in in this regard. But it's hard to know. I mean, there are obviously a lot of things going on right now, which are. This is not everyone's heard all this, so I'm not really saying that everyone already doesn't know. But you know, we have, we have variants now that are out there. We have vaccines. We have variants. We have. You know, we had a big spike in COVID cases January and February. They're coming down dramatically now, which is great, right? I think it's been a combination of maybe some impact of the vaccines and also certainly I think behavioral changes across the country. Even you know, we're you know not a lot of support for certain things like mask wearing and social distancing and you know shutdowns, economic shutdowns, that kind of thing. And I think people started realizing, well, you know, if we shut down for a couple of weeks, we can probably get this under control, kind of thing. So you know, there's been more I think acceptance of that countrywide than there was before. But, you know, the variants, it's unknown. I mean, from all the data that we've seen so far, the vaccines at least are keeping people out of the hospital and are reducing the number of the fatality of COVID. So even if the variants are, you know, able to sneak their way through and somehow still create an infection, some pretty strong evidence that even the South African variant, which is the one that a lot of people are concerned about, the Brazilian one as well, you know, either some sort of protection against The severity of the disease, even with those variants. So, you know, my view is that come 2022, I think COVID is going to be something that will be manageable. Whether that means it goes away or not, I think is still an open question. It may be like the flu, right? Where we, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid, I don't want to say that because it almost sounds like I'm, you know, sort of trying to equate COVID with the flu, which I'm not. But in terms of the way we manage it, it may be like the flu, right? So every year when you think about the flu, You know, you get a flu shot, or a lot of people get flu shots, and the flu shot is mapped to the variant that's going to be coming into the country that year, right? And they are able to determine that based on things in Asia generally. They're able to kind of predict what's going to happen for that year. Maybe the same with COVID. You know, maybe we'll find out what variant's going to be dominant that year, and that will be the vaccine that we have to give people as a booster shot every year or something. You know, I don't know what that. But in terms of what 2021 looks like, I think we're seeing an increase in claims right now, which is a result of January, February spike in number of just overall cases. So we're seeing an increase, especially in California, of claims right now. I I do think that attenuates as the year goes on. You know, I'm maybe somewhat more optimistic than some people. I do think the vaccines are going to have a huge impact. I think the the one variable is going to be when you the vaccines are going to start getting in people's arms, and there's going to be a lot of pressure for people to come back into the offices and in some industries and the economy is going to open up again and people are going to be, let's face it, we've all been locked down for a year. I mean, there is a lot of pent-up demand for things like getting on an airplane and traveling. I mean, you need to even maybe not going to get a car and, you know, go on a vacation somewhere, you're you're in a hotel and hanging out with your friends and all that. And the question will be, does that, are the vaccines, is the efficacy of those enough? And are we able to kind of hold back, you know, our own pullback back a horses a bit in terms of you know getting people kind of like to let down their guard and get together and not wear masks and that sort of thing can we hold that back until more people are vaccinated would be kind of the question so you know my view is that it kind of we're probably going to see a spike in march and February march we've seen a lot of claims come in and i think that will go down as the year goes on that's really good
0: insight rob i want to circle back on one point that you brought up and i think it's worth talking a little bit more about and it's kind of like the below the surface iceberg look. And that's the potential for permanent disability on COVID claims.
1: And what,
0: what do you think? Will that become an
1: issue for work cop carriers in the future? I think it will be. And I think what's going to happen is just like now where you've got, and I don't, this may not be a very good analogy, but it's someone that came to mind as you asked me the question, so I'll use it. But, you know, it's like now when you have a work cop injury and someone has an underlying condition like diabetes or maybe some kind of renal disease or whatever the underlying condition may be. As a work comp carrier, a lot of times you are you end up picking up some of that treatment, but you also, that gets factored in sometimes in the amount of disability the person has related to their injury, right? So advocacy attorneys will throw in, you know, as many body parts as they can. So if there is sort of COVID, I guess I'd call it, you know, kind of long-term COVID effects like you know, maybe diminished lung capacity or maybe diminished renal capacity or, you know, whatever it may be, right? I mean, they're, because it affects different systems and different people in different ways. I think it's inevitable that we're going to see cases in 2022 and beyond where we have somebody who gets a work on injury and that injury is exacerbated by the fact that the person had COVID, they have ongoing issues with it.
0: Now, I felt the same way. <laughs> it's just that we know it's out there, but we just don't know what it's going to look like, what shape it's going to take just yet.
1: One thing i did know i wanted to mention just about in terms of what we're seeing in our data is over the last month i would say i've seen more claims where especially the litigated ones where permanent disability is being contemplated as part of the claim and also as part of the claim settlement so attorneys are starting to allege permanent disability with covid now you know how successful they'll be it's hard to know long term
0: yeah i think you know speaking back to your kind of your COVID. Expertise unit claims handling. I think that's going to even become a bigger factor than at least how I would look at it. Like they're going to be much more experienced in these permanent disability demands from lawyers all across the state, you know, trying to figure out a way to attach another body part or whatever happens to
1: be so. And, and stuff. It's, the interesting thing about that, if you're right because the interesting thing about you know COVID in particular, I mean, every state is different in terms of its workers' comp laws and you know the kind of me, you know, how the courts are made up and, you know, whether they're liberal or conservative in terms of finding in favor of the interworker or not. I mean, the same is true of COVID, right? Because each state had kind of a different approach to trying to cost shift the COVID claims onto the work comp system. And, and, you know, every state was a little bit different in that regard. So that will continue as time goes on. So the question will be same with permanent disability. Will permanent disability be more of an issue in california than texas who knows right i mean yeah, time is right going it's it's to take a while to figure that out and to your point about having people that are somewhat specialized in it i mean i think that you know it will matter because they're going to get used to both understanding when we need to accept it and when we need to look at that and push back on it if we don't think right. it's related to the injury at hand exactly exactly so I'm thinking for a minute maybe about the post-pandemic world What do you think
0: are some of the biggest changes and challenges businesses will face? And maybe you could speak to things like the impact it may have on hiring or managing employee performance or even onboarding new employees. Can you share your thoughts on
1: that with us? Oh, boy, I could. This is a podcast in and of itself, Dave. Um, But you and I were talking a little bit about this before. Yeah, COVID's changed everything in some ways, right? I mean, the old model, which was largely people come into an office. Predominantly, there's some jobs that were remote jobs, even pre-pandemic. We'd already started pre-pandemic a program of work from home that was just kind of a partial work from home sort of thing, you know, one day a week sort of thing. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure, especially during this transition period between where we are today and when we've either achieved herd immunity or you know where people feel that it's safe to come into the office, right? So there's right. going to be this transition period. that's going to be kind of interesting to see how it it plays out. But my view is that there's there'll be a lot of companies are going to face a lot of issues over the next year in terms of bringing people back into the office. The pressure to some people are going to really want to work from home. Some people are really not going to want to work from home, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, right? Are you going to accommodate people that want to work from home, or you're going to you know are you going to look at what's you know in some cases that's fine for the company because there's some jobs as we described earlier that. Can be done just fine at home right but there are some that i keep going back to what tim cook at apple has said where they said we need to bring our people back because frankly we're a company that's built on innovation and design and mm-hmm. we cannot do that effectively on a zoom call and i i couldn't agree with him more right i mean one of the issues i was explaining to you earlier you know we tried to have an off meeting virtually right and it, we kind of we finally gave up and we went to a different format because. It was just too hard to make that work. So I think they're going to. I think companies are going to be really faced with this kind of dilemma between satisfying the desires of some of the employees who want to work from home because they, you know, they feel like they can achieve better work-life balance and we're sensitive to that. But we're also sensitive to thinking about what's best for the the company and for our for, for our customers as well, right? So you know, at the, at the end of the day, we don't want to create a situation where we end up providing poorer service or something because we have, we're allowing people to work from home. I mean, there has to be you know, we're still sort of betting all this out, right? I mean, how are you going to make it work in the post-pandemic world? And I just think that's going to be a big issue for all companies going forward. But things are changed. I mean, things have definitely changed. There will be some jobs that will probably never come back to the office. As it relates
0: specifically, Rob, uh, that's more individual companies.
1: As it relates to
0: our insurance industry and how maybe you see your interactions with your customers, be it uh, agents and brokers or policyholders, how do you see that changing as a result of COVID if you do it all? and then what, if any, do you see any role of technology
1: in the business
0: playing a bigger role maybe?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, one of the, the, the I'll start with the technology question first, and we'll go back to the other one. But you know the one thing the insurance industry has not done a very good job historically is keeping up with technology, right? I mean, that's just been something the insurance industry has sort of lagged. The last few years have been, you know, we've been catching up as an industry. But I think that what this pandemic has shown us is that we need to, you know, do more in terms of making sure that we can operate virtually if we have to. And so I think technology will be a big part of that, you know, so I think there'll be a real move toward, especially as millennials and, you know, Gen Zs and, you know, they start to own businesses and things like that. They really want to communicate and interact on, in an online virtual way. They're just as comfortable with that as they are sort of in person, right? So I think there will be some. you know, we'll definitely be... We've already created a number of tools that allow for self-service you know you know claims and you know other aspects of our business you know, final find a lot of that sort of thing can be done a lot of that can be done online now and i think that will that trend will continue but in terms of you know the effect on the you know how we interact with our customers i i'll think about customers in two ways one is people like you dave i mean you know you're a customer of ours right mm-hmm. you know i don't think there's any i think some meetings will go virtual i think people will will probably do this they'll probably there'll be a little bit of calculus that people will go through in their head. It's like, do I need to meet with someone in person, or can this be done on a phone call or a video call? But there is nothing that will replace the face-to-face interactions that we had pre-pandemic. And that's just my belief. I mean, now, you know, you can probably say, oh, Rob's a dinosaur. He's getting old. I mean, he just believes, you know, the way things were done in the last you know, 30 years of his career or whatever. And, you know, maybe that's partly true, but, but I also just know that the analogy I would use, and it, I don't, I hope I don't, Offend anyone when I say this, but you know there have been a lot of studies that have shown that one of the biggest problems the pandemic has created for us as a society is the impact on our kids because mm-hmm. you know kids aren't able to you know especially young children like kindergarten you know, kids that are you know in grade school you know part of being in kindergarten grade school it, it has almost less to do with what you're teaching in terms of the actual classroom stuff it's a lot about social interactions how do you create You know, how do you get along with people? How do you, you know, it's like, how do you connect and how do you move through the world with people, you know, and you can't do that very well virtually, right? So, you know, one of the big problems we've got with kids not being in school right now is that you you hear it all the time about there's increased depression, there are kids that aren't very socially well adjusted, there are behavioral problems, that kind of thing. Well, I would argue that, you know, we're all just adults, you know, we're just grown up children right at the end of the day. And and I still believe that, you know, there's nothing that will replace, you know, being side by side with someone talking about, you know, with your customers talking about a problem that they're having or whatever, sitting so across the table from them trying to come up with a solution. Some of that can be done virtually, but I honestly believe that the companies that are able to sort of like find the right balance between virtual and in-person, they're going to be the companies that are going to be more effective.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think we've seen that in our business model as well with our customers and our clients. There's, there's a time and a place for video, for sure. And then I, we really believe there's a time and a place to, to get together and and you know learn more about them as a person as well as gives us insights to their business and other ways that we can help them. So I'm kind of old school with you, as you know, I'm older than you are, which you readily remind me. So we are old school, but yeah, we still you know like to sit across the table, look somebody in the eye, and, and have a good solid business discussion. So I do think it's forced us to to lean into technology a little bit more, which I think is good. The, are these podcasts are one example of that where we can broadband this out to any number of people that's great and it'll continue but yes i think we're all kind of anxious to get back to get outside and play at recess right, <laughs> right
1: don't worry about it. well you know i it kind of goes back to the calculus thing i was talking about. I mean, the one thing that the pandemic has done is shown us that we can get our work done virtually which i think is a good thing i mean most of us you know we literally went from being a non-virtual company, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, on March the 10th, we were all in the, going into the office. By March 15th to 16th, which was a Monday, we were all virtual, right? So right. like over that, right. the yeah. 16th and 18th, we went from being a non-virtual company to a virtual one kind of overnight. And what we're able to demonstrate is we can do it. I mean, that it actually, we can get work done in that environment, right? And what will happen now going forward, is there probably be more people that will probably look at certain meetings and that sort of thing and say, do we really need to get on a plane and go get everybody together to do this? Is there value in that? Or can it be handled in right. a different way? So I think there'll be more of that, right? I think it will be more right. thinking about whether or not we need to do it, but I don't think it's going to go away. Like, I honestly don't think the world can become sort of like two-dimensional, you know, we're going to have two-dimensional relationships on Zoom for the rest of our lives, right? I just don't right. think that that, I, I actually think that companies that, embrace kind of a combination between, you know, ways to connect through technology in person meetings and virtually, right. Or uh, people, the, the companies that can sort of meld that together and figure out a way to make that formula work are going to be the winners. Because I, I just don't think that it's going to be, it's a, you know, some people say, oh, we're, you know, insurance is now bound to be a virtual you know industry. I just don't think that's true. We've done the mid market accounts and above where, you know, in-person loss control visits and, sometimes claim visits or, you know, doing a prospect meeting, whatever. I mean, we can do those virtually, but man, they're just, it's just not the same.
0: I totally agree. Hey Rob, real quick. Let's turn to the general workers' compensation marketplace here in California. How would you describe the California market as we move into 21 and 22? What would you tell businesses out there?
1: Gosh. what well, your crystal ball look like? Yeah. My crystal ball is very cloudy on this one. You know the market. It was interesting, as we I think we've talked about it before. It was almost like the market became in work for work comp. And I'll just think about talking about California for a second here first, but it's true all over the country. The market became actually softer when COVID hit, and it's unclear to me exactly why that was. Except we probably were the best house in a bad neighborhood sort of thing, mm-hmm. right? There are a lot of other lines that were really struggling in terms of you know, the the loss ratio and things. I think the headline numbers for work comp were so good, you know, in 2019 and 2020 that people said, well, even if COVID costs us five points or 10 points, we're still going to be okay. So let's just go ahead yeah. and be aggressive, right. And buy market share now. And so I think, you know, you saw the market take a pretty big dip. I mean, in terms of the you know, competitive nature of it, 2021 doesn't seem to be a whole lot different than 2020 was in that regard. But, you know, like, I don't really know. And, you know, You have to be careful about saying something about this because you don't want to tip the market or anything. But, you know, it it isn't clear to me that there's been any event yet that's going to harden the market appreciably. The only thing that could happen, I think, is if companies, if reinsurance becomes more difficult for certain companies that rely on it to get, which the reinsurance market has hardened some, right? I mean, primary market. So some of the companies that rely on reinsurance, if that becomes more of a problem, they may you know, have to sort of, you know, back off of certain industries or, you know, maybe write less business or whatever. I mean, that's a possibility. So that could cause the market to firm up a bit. The other thing that could happen is people could realize, wow, COVID was a lot bigger deal than we thought it was going to be in our book. And, you know, we thought it was going to be cost, whatever, 2% it cost us 8% or something, right? And they didn't expect that. And that can cause people to, you know, back up a little bit and say, we're going to have to firm up. Right. In fact, there've been a few, you know, there've been a, and this is not, this is not inside information. This is you know, publicly available information. But there have been a few companies that have filed for rate increases in 2021, which has surprised me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really expect that. But, see, there's a big disconnect right now between what we'll call accident results and the calendar results, right? So the calendar results are being driven largely by reserve releases from prior years because we all probably were more – pessimistic about the way development was going to occur post the reform in 2013 and 2014. I think we all underestimated how good that was going to be. And so there's been a lot of reserve releases as a result. Now that can't last forever, right? That tank is going to empty out. And so pretty soon we're going to be looking at accident results and policy results. And it's just hard to say whether, you know, companies will react to that or not in real time. Yeah, for sure. Robin, I, I know how engaged you are in, you know, the
0: political landscape. I mean, you certainly said that I lean on frequently to try to understand things that I see out there. So what I can see from my chair is I recognize that the political landscape has certainly changed in the past several months. How, if at all, you know, do you expect the workers' competition in industry to be impacted by the new administration's policies?
1: Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I don't know that. Well, first of all, I don't think federalization of work comp is down the road, so I don't think we have to worry about that. I don't think that's, you know, Biden's not really as far, you know, he's not that far left, really. So, I mean, it isn't like he's, you know, sort of pounding on the table saying we need, you know, Medicare for all and all these other things. I mean, I think the biggest issue would be something like Medicare for all that would include workers' comp, and that would change the, obviously, change our industry a great deal, right? If medical got carved out of it, we'd be left with only indemnity, and it would change the industry a great deal. But, you know, it isn't clear to me that there's enough support for that to actually happen. Now, you know, Biden's more in favor of, you know, universal health care through a public option, and that's completely different. That doesn't probably affect our business that much. In fact, if anything, it could be positive because if people have group health insurance, they're not going to be as likely to use workers' comp, you know, when group health is actually where a claim may belong rather than workers' comp. So, you know, I am not. I don't really think it's going to be impactful, I was gonna, it could have an impact on some of our the businesses that we insure, right? I mean, there could be more regulation, things like that. I mean, you know, because a lot of regulations were rolled back under the Trump administration. So we could see some of that that could affect some of the businesses that, that we insure, but I'm not sure it's going to really affect us too much. Okay. Now, the one thing that could happen, I suppose is possible is if we start seeing <clears throat> more inflation as a result of some of the stimulus issues that, have, you know, some of the stimulus has been put into the, the system at some point, we're going to have to figure out a way out of that because i mean we have right. you know dedicated trillions of dollars to uh, probably appropriately right i mean because if we hadn't done that there would have been a lot of people that would have been kicked out of their homes and you know a lot of other things might have happened but i mean you know you, that's where it gets political you can decide whether you agree with it or not but you know i think it was bipartisan the first two bills that were passed they were, were pretty bipartisan you know at some point the roosters are going to have home to roost on inflation and inflation could be a problem for the industry as well right so if we have You know, rampant inflation. That's going to affect medical costs. It's going to affect you know a lot of things.
0: Yeah,
1: Rob. Before we wrap up
0: this morning, is there anything I you know neglected to ask you that you'd like to share with the audience
1: before we go? No, I I appreciate the opportunity, Dave. And you know, I like I said, I get asked a lot about what I think is going to happen with COVID in the market. And you know, I you know I was telling somebody, or I write these emails to the company, you know, every three weeks or so. And one of the comments I made in my last one was, I've never in my career been in a situation where the future was so unclear to me, right? Like yeah. the threat was especially through last year, pre-vaccine, when we really didn't know what this pandemic was going to do. It was it going to wipe out man, mankind in total, or was it going to, you know, was it going to finally go away, and we're going to find a way to, you know, therapeutics and ways to treat it, which is really where I thought we would end up. I didn't really think we had an existential threat. I, I, I don't believe that we do, but I think the thing that I think I've been most impressed with is our ability to get a vaccine so quickly in this mm-hmm. country. Amazing to me we've been able to do that. I think that that will ultimately save a lot of lives and, you know, it will obviously have an impact on our industry because we'll have fewer COVID claims as a result. Yeah. And just kind of looking into the future a little bit, Rod, can I
0: pre-commit you to uh, getting together with me again in June or July and kind of giving the audience an update? Maybe by then the vaccine will have really kicked in and some some of our, uh, inside of our little crystal ball, maybe the fog will be uplifted
1: a little bit. Yeah, I'd be happy to, as long replay some of the things I said today and say, you said <laughs> I'm going to you know. I can't believe how wrong you were. Do you like to change your thoughts on that? Well, um, I, can, but, I, can, I, can, I will for sure be wrong, but
0: that's okay. <laughs> okay, great. So, hey, Rob, thanks thanks so much for your time today and, and giving us all a chance to get updated on, you know, kind of the impacts COVID-19 had on the workers' compensation marketplace and, and especially as we head into 2021, trying to give businesses some light at the end of their tunnel as well. Like, okay, the workers' compensation is in place. It's survived. It's learned. And, you know, it's something we don't want to take our eye off of, but it's something that we're it's manageable at this point. So again, Rob, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you.
1: I really appreciate it too, Dave. Thanks a lot.
0: That'll do it for today. So thank you for joining me and for tuning into Studio One, our safety and risk management network. Until next time, stay well. This is Alyssa Burley with Rancho Mesa. Thanks for tuning in to our latest episode produced by Studio One. For more information, visit us at ranchomesa.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter.